Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston Schrader. And I'm Jason Carr. Today we wrapped up our three-part series on plant breeding. Our interviewee was Devin Nichols. Devin is actually a commercial corn breeder here in Illinois for Bear Crop Science. Jason, what did we talk about? I thought this was a fascinating conclusion to our series on plant breeding. Uh, We talked about topics such as genome-wide selection. We talked about CRISPR. We talked about the future of plant breeding. We even talked about the fact that Devin uh, has been showcased on a TV show called American Ninja Warrior. So a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's quite entertaining. So without further ado, let's get to our interview with Devin. So Devin, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on here today. To start out, I wondered if you could give us a little bit about your background, your educational history, and then maybe tie that into what your current role is today. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and thanks for having me. I appreciate the, the opportunity to, to join you and talk a little bit about breeding today. So my background, uh, in, a, in a breeding sense, I always say I'm an Illinois inbred. So I was uh, <laughs> born and raised in, in central Illinois. So I grew up in, in western central Illinois uh, near Jacksonville. And uh, when I went to went off to college, I did all of my school at the, the University of Illinois. So I did a, a bachelor's, a master's, and a PhD all through the crop sciences department at uh, the University of Illinois. Studying uh, my master's was in uh, soybean breeding, and my PhD was in corn breeding. I graduated with my uh, PhD in 2008, and uh, after that, I started directly with Monsanto. That was the only uh, the only time of my life that I was outside of Illinois. I, I spent two long winters in Nebraska. And then as, as soon as the position opened up uh, back in Illinois, I uh, moved back to Illinois and I've been a breeder for Monsanto and now for Bear in central Illinois ever since. I'm currently located at our Stonington, Illinois facility just uh, southeast of Springfield. So before we get into you know the current state of breeding, uh, plant breeding, I'm curious, what is the backstory? I follow you on Twitter, Devin. I know you were part of, uh, is it American Ninja Warrior. I forget what the title is, but uh, I know you represented, you know, corn breeders everywhere and you participated in this athletic endeavor. Could you take a minute to describe that? Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, the whole, uh, the, the story of the kilted corn breeder in general is, is mostly the story of an avatar that became a, a reality, I guess. Um, so I, I, I started uh, jokingly calling myself the kilted corn breeder. I, I have some Scottish heritage and, uh, got involved with a uh, Scottish society in, in Springfield and, and started wearing a kilt on occasion. And um, so I, I figured with the alliteration of kilted corn breeder, it, uh, <laughs> it'd be a fun thing to do. And then uh, sort of a, a separate story that then becomes intertwined is uh, I have four daughters and my four daughters are avid fans of the, the it's an NBC show called American Ninja Warrior. And we've watched that show for probably five years and, Eventually, we turned it into a hobby and start, started uh, building some of the obstacles we saw in the show in our backyard <laughs> and playing around on them. And one year, they convinced Dad that he should send in an audition video for the show, and I tried to appease them, assuming that <laughs> there's no way I would ever get a call back to be on the show because it's, it's fairly selective. And uh, yeah, about a year ago now, is uh, I, went, I got a call from a Los Angeles phone number inviting me to come compete on the show and it was taped uh, last May in Cincinnati and then the episode aired in in July so I got my five seconds of fame and that's that's about what it was that's about it what it was five seconds I, I like to say uh, 
So in the show, when you're, it's an obstacle course racing show, and when you fail an obstacle, you fall in the water. So I, I, I like to uh, say that just like all the corn in 2019, the Kilted Corn Breeder got wet <laughs> too early. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so and, and then that so once that happened, I when I went on the show, all the ninjas have a nickname, so I used the Kilted Corn Breeder nickname and had a logo made and shirts made, and and so it kind of all tied together at that point. And I, th- I think now it's an avatar that's gonna stick with me long after <laughs> I want it to, probably. <laughs> But for it, it, now it's for now it's fun. Yeah, someday you may say it's haunting you. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think some days it already is, but uh, <laughs> I, I I sent back in my submission video to to try to get back on the show again. And this summer they're going to film uh, two episodes in St. Louis, so maybe nice. I'll get lucky and get the call and uh, let the legend grow a little bit before I kill it off. <laughs> Can you find the clip on YouTube? I don't know if it's on YouTube. You can okay. find it on uh, you can find it on NBC. They have the old episodes on NBC, and you can go back. and It was uh, season season eleven, episode six, about halfway through. Perfect. Look look for the uh, disappointed we'll, uh, family in green shirts <laughs> porn on it. We'll link to the clip in the show notes so the listeners can go check it out. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Devin, uh, as you as you know, this is the third part in our series on the history of plant breeding, and we spent quite a bit of time talking with Tom Floyd, who was one of your colleagues for a time, was a soybean breeder, and um, he kind of took us through, you know, the time frame of about 2010, probably, and breeding has changed quite a bit since then, so maybe we could a- approach this subject with you kind of telling us in general, how does a breeding cycle work? Yeah, and I, I guess one of the caveats I always like to start with when I'm talking about modern breeding, or as as we like to call it, precision breeding, is I, I start with the caveat that really the, the general fr- framework of breeding that we operate under isn't really any different than it was at the beginning of breeding that Tom probably talked about. And that's that we're still just going through repeated cycles of recombination, evaluation and selection where we recombine genetics to create uh, new combinations of genes. We evaluate those new genetic entities in some way, and then we select the best. And those are the ones that get recycled back into the breeding uh, for the next cycle, as well as the ones that in a commercial breeding program, um, they get siphoned off of the the breeding process and, and go out and become our commercial products. But what has changed is how we operate within that framework. And and I'm, I'm sure Tom talked some about the history from domestication all the way up through sort of what we would call traditional plant breeding. And it, it really has evolved a lot from an art form where almost purely selecting on visual phenotypes, um, relying on natural cross-pollination to create that genetic variation, evaluating just by harvesting your crop, and your selection was you keep the best one and use that as your seed source for the next year. Um, so we've evolved from that to where today, just as farming has evolved, um, it's become a very, very much a very precise science now rather than an art. I, I, I like to maintain that there's some tiny fraction of the job that's that's still an art form that that uh, not anyone can do, but it's uh, very much a, a science, and and every step of the process is uh, driven by science and data and analytics. And so if I if I think about that sort of as those three buckets, recombination, evaluation, selection, um, the recombination piece now 
we have a lot of data available to us when we're deciding which of our current genetics we want to recombine um, rather than having that natural cross-pollination. We're control doing controlled pollination to um, cross two individuals, and we make sure that uh, we look at that data and have individuals that are complementary for their strengths and weaknesses. So when we're talking corn, if one line has outstanding yield and very good standability, but is susceptible to some key diseases, then we'll want to cross it to something that has uh, tolerance to those diseases. And maybe we can stand to have slightly less yield on that side of the cross or um, tolerate some standability issues. Because when you cross those two complementary lines together and produce new progeny, you can uh, find segregates that have the best of both. Evaluation piece. Oh, sorry. Do you have a question? I was just going to comment that, uh, you know, you mentioned the information that you have on the parents to make those choices between what parents you're going to choose for to create the next generation. And you have a whole lot more information available at your disposal now than even, say, 15 years ago, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So I, part of that is we, we collect a lot more phenotypic data today than we did in the past. So a lot more of the, the data that we collect on our field trials, um, but also a big piece of that, especially in the, the early side of the breeding process, is that we also have a lot of genetic information that we just wouldn't have had uh, 15 years ago or even 10 years ago necessarily. It's cheap enough now that we can run molecular markers, get some genetic information on every single seed before we ever go to the field with it. And we can uh, use genome-wide selection to help um, advanced materials. And in the same way, when we're doing this, uh, setting up a crossing block and deciding what crosses to make, we can use that same type of genetic information that helps really inform which crosses make sense and which don't, um, and narrow down the list of millions of potential crosses that we could make to the several thousand that might make sense to make um, from a complementation standpoint. Excellent. So you were going into your second bucket there, I think. Feel free. To yeah. Pick, so pick with evaluation, um, and I don't know how far Tom made it on this, but I mean, when we when we think back thousands of years, that evaluation piece was, I mean, if you're growing corn, you you're growing it to eat, and your evaluation is just when you're harvesting it. Um, and then came the era where we have research combines where we can collect very precise yield data on those products as we're harvesting them, and then today, even with uh, uh, advent of some sciences in in some um, advances in in technology for imaging. So using um, UAS technology, our, our drones to to fly over field and and get an image. We can collect a lot more data to help evaluate those products uh, than we ever have before. And this evaluation piece is also where I would put the true genome wide selection. So where we're genotyping every individual line before we put it in the field and uh, evaluating it based on a, a genomic model to, to predict field performance. Um, and so we're combining both that um, evaluation in the field uh, in, in yield trials with some evaluation in the lab based on genetic data uh, to get a better idea of, of true performance and true value of a line. So you can, you can correct me here if I misstate this, but in genome-wide selection, um, we're basically looking at a, a very large number of loci or genes across the genome and seeing how those compare to performance of known hybrids that have been created in the past, correct? 
Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And so it's it's all trained based on our historical data, and that that's that's part of what took so long for it to become a a fully integrated part of our breeding program. So uh, molecular markers and uh, marker assisted breeding, genome wide selection are not really new ideas. They've been around for for decades, but uh, when they were new technologies running DNA markers on a sample was was pretty expensive. So you could only run a few samples. It wasn't, um, it was more expensive to do the genetic evaluation than the field evaluation. But after decades of uh, improvements in that technology and advances in, in the sciences, we have uh, DNA technologies now where we can, we can do, get a DNA fingerprint of a line uh, much cheaper than we can actually evaluate it in the field. So it allows us now to um, in combination with our seed chippers, which take a, a tiny uh, chip off of a, a seed and doesn't damage its germ, so we can still grow that that kernel. We can actually, the combination of that seed chipper with the relatively inexpensive genotyping technologies, we can genotype every single seed before we plant it in the field. And then we run it through a genome-wide selection model, which as I said, we've, we've built up over time. So over the, the last decade, every line that we've tested in the field, we've collected that performance data on. We've also then been able to go back and get the corresponding genotype data. And now we can, um, with some data analytics, connect each segment of DNA that we're looking at with those markers and correlate it to field performance. And so the genome-wide selection is using a large, like you said, a large number of those markers scattered across the entire genome to sort of do a, a large scale prediction of what's the, the breeding value of this line. And, and we can predict performance for yield, but we can also predict performance for any other trait that we've measured historically. So stock lodging, root lodging, um, test weight, plant height, ear height. It's similar, I guess, in the technology to anyone who's used ancestry.com and you get your, you send in your, um, tissue or, or spit and they do run some DNA analysis on it and then you can get back a report that predicts your um, susceptibility to certain diseases or can predict your eye color or whether or not you're going to have a bad reaction to cilantro. Uh, we can do basically <laughs> basically the same thing for corn, right? We use those markers to make predictions on, on what the performance is going to be. Hmm. And uh, some of them were more confident than, than in others and so traits that are more heritable and easier to measure in the field. Uh, so things like plant height, ear height, the maturity um, are much more highly predictable than, than things that are harder to measure and um, are less heritable, like stocks and stock lodging and root lodging. And that's the same with with any uh, with the technologies that people can send their, uh, they can do a much better prediction of how, maybe like how, uh, what color your eyes are going to be, then that's a much more simply inherited trait than how tall you're going to be. Uh, it's the same with, with corn. We can predict some traits much more accurately than, than others. Um, but then the, I, I guess to get a little bit back on track here, the real value of this is now that molecular markers are so cheap and we can do this um, very quickly in the lab, it allows us to really increase the number of new genetic combinations that we're evaluating each year. Um, so, uh, we on a on a single DNA chip that's about a one inch by one inch chip, we can get as we can collect as much data as we could off of 14 acres of field trials, and so and and for roughly the the same the same cost. So it it really lets us scale up our pipeline, and and so a lot of times we'll we'll describe that pipeline where we go from 
early stage t- testing to late stage testing and commercial as a large funnel where we put lots of lines or new genetic combinations into the top of this funnel. And then we evaluate them across several years. And each year we're selecting only the best to retest the following year. So at the bottom of the funnel, we only have a handful of super elite commercial products that come out. And so one way to increase the, the chances and to increase the increase the chances of finding a new, better product, as well as uh, increase the speed that you can do that is to, to open up that top end of the funnel and put more material into it. And that's exactly what uh, genome-wide selection allows us to do. So when you're, when you're talking about this technology, obviously you still have a position where you're going out in the field and looking at performance. So it, it, it's not, uh, it doesn't make 100% of your decision. Do you use this information to, um, say, choose what you think are the top 10%, or do you use this uh, technology to eliminate what you think are the bottom percentage? Yeah, so it's it's sort of a both both and kind of question. So I one one misconception that I that I do like to to make sure I correct is uh, when we when we start talking about genome wide selection, I think sometimes the idea comes across that we're using GWS to completely replace field testing. And what I'd say it really allows us to do is, um, like you said, it's it's really good about eliminating the worst. So we can really uh, we're really confident that we can predict those. Um, new genetics that really have no chance of ever performing anywhere. And then we can narrow down to say the top 10% or 20% or 30%, whatever, whatever that number is, you can really focus in on just those new genetics that we predict ha- will have the best performance. And since we're able to do this very quickly in the lab, so it doesn't take us a full year like a, a field trial would, we can, we can put more material in, we can do it very rapidly, and then it actually allows us, when we take those most elite, highly predicted lines to the field, it gives us actually more time to test them more thoroughly in the field than we would be able to without GWS. So um, it really narrows down what we're focusing on, but then lets us test those even more thoroughly um, than we would have been able to before we're going to get them into a farmer's field and in a commercial product. How, out of curiosity, how much faster do products get released using GWS versus not? So like, are we eliminating two years off of, you know, the pipeline before commercial release or, or how quick are these products able to be launched? Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's a pretty tough question to nail down to exactly the amount of time that we're saving. So we can definitely shave off, um, years of the development cycle but then we're putting some of that save time back into um, making sure that we're getting the right trait packages integrated into those products and then getting them um, tested better in the field i I would say that um, so it's an efficiency increase more than a uh, time reduction strategy right yeah so so it's it's yeah so we think about breeding as sort of a two-stage process, right? So so my focus is very much on the, the early stages of, of product development, of making those um, new crosses between parents and developing new elite inbred lines. And then we have an, another group of breeders that we call uh, commercial development breeders that are really the ones who take over the late stage of the pipeline where they're looking at specific combinations of new inbreds. So looking at those hybrid products and evaluating those and evaluating them in the the proper trait packages, so with the right biotech traits, 
that meet market needs and uh, honing in on which of those specific hybrid genetics are have the potential to be commercial products and then um, understanding their performance under under different agronomic practices or different chemistries and uh, taking that solution to a grower, deciding what's going to be a commercial product and where that commercial product is going to be placed. Um, and, and so really at the front end of the pipeline, we have definitely shaved off off time for development. Some of that time is is being utilized to let us really characterize those hybrid products better without incre- without making a bigger lag time to market. But uh, yeah, so I, I would say when you combine genome-wide selection with other technologies that we've implemented into our breeding programs, uh, things like doubled haploid technology, we've been able to shave off a, a couple of years in the, in the development cycle. Um, now, what that looks like when we, in commercial release time, it may not translate to exactly um, the same, but uh, definitely we've sped up the process. And, and the real benefit is we've been able to evaluate more material, do a better job of it, and then um, do do an even better characterization of uh, hybrid products in those last stages before commercialization. So we really understand them before they're rolled out to uh, customers. So Devin, you, you mentioned traits a couple times and you're, when you're breeding, you're obviously always trying to increase yield. That's always important. And then you're also trying to do things to protect the crop against insects, for example, or maybe a new herbicide resistance or whatever it may be. So there's a couple, couple of ways that we get new traits into a crop. Um, can we start off with talking about the, what we would call native traits? And what those are? Yeah, sure. So, so in general, when we're talking about native traits, we're talking about about something like a, a disease resistance trait, for example. But where we're getting the the new allele or the new gene for that from that trait from existing germplasm and not from a biotech trait, where we're either creating a uh, a new gene variant or bringing a, a gene from a different species, but a native trait being a, a gene that's native to the crop we're working on and uh, just present in uh, more ex- exotic germplasm. And then we're bringing that into our elite germplasm for, for the U.S. Um, to help correct for a disease. Are so those found opportunistically or are there people in far off places in the world actively scouting for this type of genetic material yeah so it definitely doesn't happen opportunistically it's definitely a a strategy we have in our breeding programs and i i that's a a great advantage for working for a company like bear is is we have a a massive i i'm definitely a, a biased have a biased opinion but i would say the the best germplasm pool in the in the world for corn and so anytime we're looking for a genetic response to an emerging trait, so especially disease is the easy example, so I'll stick with that. There's an emerging disease and we're looking for uh, genetic resistance to that disease. The first thing we do is, is look in our global germplasm pool and see if there's anywhere in the world where that disease is not an emerging disease, but is, is something they've dealt with for years. And if that's the case, then we look at that germplasm and look for individuals that have the, the disease resistance we need and uh, work to bring it into our elite pipeline. Um, one, one thing that's changed over time as we do that is, I, I would say even a decade ago, if, if we had that kind of problem and we were using that uh, native trait solution, 
we'd go find that exotic germplasm that had the resistance we need. Um, we'd look for the trait and then we'd, we'd make a cross of that line with the trait we wanted with our adapted material. So for in the U.S., that would be U.S. Corn Belt adapted material. We produce progeny and then we'd evaluate the pro progeny for that trait. And uh, eventually we could identify uh, progeny that's adapted to the corn belt and has the disease resistance we need. But oftentimes, since we're selecting on the trait, we're bringing pretty large chunks of that exotic germplasm into our elite germplasm. So often we'd see um, maybe we'd get the disease tolerance we need, but we'd take a hit for yield. We call that yield drag because we're bringing in, um, we're not very precise about the DNA we're moving. So in addition to moving disease resistance, we might bring in some other um, genes with it that would negatively impact our yield in the, in the corn belt. So then it might take us several cycles of that recombination evaluation selection to breed that out and get back to the, the yield level we need. And so today with our precision breeding technology, we do very much the same thing. If we have an emerging disease, we go look where else in the globe is that disease already established, where our breeders in that part of the world have focused on it for years where there's resistance. But instead of then of, of just focusing and trying to move that trait into our germplasm, we'll actually first look to understand the genetics underlying the trait and then move specific genes in a more targeted way into our germplasm. And that's really where we start talking about a native trait strategy, um, because then we can move that gene uh, in a similar way to how we would put a biotech trait into um, adapted germplasm. We're just using a native trait, a very similar approach, bringing just that gene in with very little um, extra DNA. And so we can do that more precisely, more efficiently, and it really reduces that yield drag that we might see. So we can get to the market with a, a new product, with the um, new trait that we need much quicker than maybe we could in the past, even though we're using the same source for resistance. So you talked a little bit about how the, the how it compares, you know, how we've come to the point where we can bring in a native trait with some of the same precision that we can uh, put in a biotech trait. Is there anywhere where that breeding process is different? Yeah, for for sure it's different. So uh, starting with uh, starting with a native trait rather than a biotech trait gives us a lot more freedom to operate. So um, with the biotech traits, um, they're almost always put in. So when when I'm Breeding within my breeding program, it's 100% conventional uh, material. And then we have a trait integration team that puts those biotech traits in uh, further on down the line, sort of in parallel to our breeding process. With the native traits, since there's no um, regulation around that, it's a native gene that's uh, found in corn in nature. We don't have to worry about any of the, the regulatory aspects. Um, so for one, it's it's a much cheaper solution than than using a biotech approach, uh, but then also we can forward breed with it, so we can use it in those um, development crosses and and really let it have a high uh, penetrance into our germplasm fairly rapidly. Hmm. So I'm an entomologist, so this may be a, a dumb question, but we talked about you know like. In the previous couple episodes, uh, mutagenesis, um, using bacteria plasmids to insert traits uh, to the gene gun. In today's world, how are those traits integrated, whether they're native or, or the other kind of trait? How are those integrated into the current uh, pipeline? So the biotech traits are, are still today 
integrated into the the germplasm very much the way if if you talk through Jenga and transformation or agrobacterium transformation, um, still very similar methods used today. I mean, obviously there have been improvements on those processes, and it's uh, it's maybe more efficient than it was, but the the general technology for um, putting a new trait into the crop is similar to um, how it's been. I guess one thing we haven't touched on is uh, when, when we start thinking about gene editing. And so gene editing is maybe the next step in um, and, and sort of a, a hybrid. I guess, the regulators haven't decided, I guess, yet for sure where, where in the world it's considered a, a regulated trait and where it's more um, considered similar to a native trait. Um, so there's some regulation that's, that still needs to work out around that. Um, but the gene editing is is a pretty um, new and emerging tool that that for sure we're looking at in how how we can utilize it in our breeding programs. And um, I'm, I'm sure all other breeding programs are, are doing the same. So you've kind of uh, brought us to the future here, which was, you know, kind of how we were going to wrap up this uh, interview. So you talk about gene editing, a lot of, you know, the term CRISPR gets thrown around. Can you talk about that in just a little bit more detail? Yeah, so I mean, in, in general, the technology, and, and certainly I'm no expert in, in gene editing, but uh, it's, it's, it's a cool new tool that uh, working for a company like Bayer, we have access to. They're, they're experts in genome editing. We have teams working on it, so it, it's going to be something we're using in our program. And it really, it's it's sort of the next evolution. So I talked about um, sort of the native trait strategy where a decade ago we were selecting on a trait and now we're selecting on a gene. Well, in the future, we're maybe selecting on just an individual base pair, or maybe you don't even select on it anymore because you can use gene editing like a word processor to go in and precisely change a single DNA base pair to create a desired effect. Um, and, and so it really opens up a, a world of possibilities. And, and we talk about our programs moving from uh, a place where we're selecting the best new lines to where in the future, maybe we can actually design the best new lines. Um, so thinking more holistically of um, what, are the, what are the market needs and then defining um, what our product concept is that would meet that market need. And then being able to go back and, and use a technology like genome editing, CRISPR, in addition to all the other uh, breeding tools we have to really design almost from the ground up um, the genetics that might meet that market need. And then, of course, doing the field evaluation to, to make sure that the design we have uh, works under the diverse conditions it's exposed to. So, Devin, I'm just curious when we talk about gene editing, you know, there's a lot of hope that um, it might be a little bit less strenuous to bring some of these products to market. It's probably, in some ways, more comparable to uh, the mutagenesis, which was used in the past, although that was a kind of a shotgun approach as, a, as opposed to maybe more like a sniper approach with a CRISPR. So what is your feeling? Do you think that there will be, um, it'll be easier to bring these products to market, or do you feel like we're kind of down the biotech road and we're going to have to follow those regulations for all products in the future? Yeah, it's a, it's a complex question because I, I think if you look just within the U.S., that the U.S. regulatory bodies have said they're going to treat it 
not like a biotech trade, but more like a native trade. And so in the U.S., I think the approach to market could be much more like a native trade. But if you look globally and where where politics have maybe impacted the decisions more than science, I, I in, in Europe, the current status is they're treated like um, biotech trades. And so they're regulated or not allowed at all in, in most of Europe. Then when you're when you work for a global corporation, it uh, it makes you think probably we're going to have to treat them more like a, a biotech trade um, since our our customers are exporting the grain all around the world. We're going to have to go through all those as, as long as there are countries that consider it uh, similar to a biotech trade. We'll have to go through all those regulatory loopholes to make sure that it's um, got all the proper approvals so that uh, our customers have the freedom to. Uh, sell the grain to the elevator and and have it go into the global trade market. So, I, unfortunately, I think that's that's probably where we are. Is maybe we have a little bit more flexibility in our early stage research if it's not re- if it's not regulated within the U.S. We maybe have a little more freedom to operate, um, though we we still have to manage it pretty tightly so that nothing that's not globally approved gets escapes and gets into the market. So. That's always a, a very important consideration and, and something we take uh, very seriously. So, And that's probably a piece of the story that people don't necessarily realize, that just because something's approved in the United States, um, there's a lot more that goes into getting a global approval, which when we're talking about growing commodity crops that go all over the globe, there's important considerations when it comes to factoring in, like you mentioned, other countries' acceptance of these products. Yeah, yeah, and that's always been the trick with biotech traits, and and why sometimes those get delayed in in their rollout to the market is that you not not only do you have to get approval from three different regulatory agencies in the U.S., but then you have to get their proper approvals through regulatory agencies around the globe. And if any one of those doesn't get doesn't have approval, then we're not going to release it as a product because uh, I. I think I think there was an example of that by a competitor a few years ago, and it didn't turn out so well, right? <laughs> We've all heard of Starlink corn. <laughs> yeah. So, Devin, to end the podcast, we like to ask our guests what their views are on the future of ag. What are they excited about? Uh, you've talked about some exciting technologies, uh, genetic genome-wide selection, and the ability that that provides to uh, – scale and increase efficiency in plant breeding, uh, gene editing, other technology like that. So what what excites you about the future of tomorrow in ag? Are you working on 400, 500 bushel corn right now? <laughs> yeah, so so I think the genetic potential for that is certainly there, and uh, it's an exciting possibility. Uh, it's, and, and really, that's I, I would say that's what excites me about the future is, is right now we're we're sort of at the cusp where there's been some pretty exciting advancement in a lot of different areas of science, whether that's the uh, the genomics and and how efficiently and cheaply we can get genomic data to uh, things like UAS technology, where we're getting more phenotypes and more uh, phenotypic data than ever before off using um, imaging. Uh, and, and really all of these things coalescing, coming together and what that means for our for our breeding programs, and and I think it allows us to. Um, I, I talked a little bit earlier about how you sort of go out and find the uh, define what the market needs really are, and then define 
um, sort of what our products need to look like to meet those market needs, and then being able to go back clear to the beginning of of the breeding uh, the breeding process where where I sit, where my role is, and maybe it's 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 like going from looking for a house on the open market to being able to build your own home editing blueprints to have a house look exactly like you want. I sort of envision that's where we're headed um, in breeding. We're moving from that, looking at what exists and picking the best and seeing how we can manage it to fit into a market and do better than our competitors to looking at what do we really need to develop that meets all the all the needs of a farmer and then going back and starting from the blueprints, say, what's that look like? And what technologies can we use? Can we use analytics and genome-wide selection to bring together existing germplasm? Or are there certain traits that don't exist and we need to use gene editing to to tweak some existing genes to give us the traits that we need? Um, and then testing that thoroughly. Uh, part of the beauty of Bayer is that we not only have our breeding, but we also have chemistry and biotech. So in our testing we can, once we have those products designed, get them out to the field and test them. We're testing not just the new genetics, but we're testing those in combination with new chemistries and new biotech traits and testing them under different agronomic practices. And all of that data from our R&D process is feeding into um, something like climate. And when we go with a new product to a customer on a farm, we can make recommendations, not just here's our new genetics, you figure out how to grow them, but here are our new genetics, and we've already tested them for all of these factors. And here's a set of recommendations we can provide that we think will um, give the best return for your dollar on your farm. Um, and, and really taking, um, I guess, making it so no farmer's field is ever my breeding experiment, right? That by the time I get to the farmer's field, uh, we've thoroughly characterized the product and know how it will perform and um, can make really good recommendations on uh, both the genetics, but al also the agronomic practices and uh, chemistries that should be used to to maximize the return on investment. Future definitely is exciting, and uh, we're looking forward to the next uh, decades and seeing where uh, corn breeders like yourself can take this crop. Yeah, I think the the future is bright. I, I definitely am excited to uh, to get to be here at this time and, and working with all these new technologies and uh, seeing how I can use them to, to get better uh, solutions for our customers, for sure. Perfect. Yeah. Well, Devin, uh, thank you for uh, your generous uh, gift of time here today to join us on the podcast for a discussion. And uh, to wrap up our, our three-part series on uh, breeding, I was wondering, is there a way our listeners can uh, follow you? Yeah, so so probably the the best way that I've found to connect with the 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 community is is through Twitter. So my handle is Kilted Breeder. I've got the the avatar there, so it's it's <laughs> easy to find me. I think. Perfect. Well, we'll uh, add that to the show notes. And like I said, appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you guys very much. I I had fun and uh, appreciate it. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.